Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Previously, I discussed the origins of democracy in Greece, and then last week, Marie discussed a little kingdom on a hill called Rome. She discussed up to the point where Rome abandoned its kings and became a new form of government, the Republic. The Roman Republic began in 509 BC when Tarquinius Superbus was ousted. This ended the 244-year-long reign of kings and began the era of the Republic, which would endure over 400 years up until 27 BC. After that, Julius Caesar's nephew and heir, Augustus, made Rome into a continent-spanning empire that stood for another 437 years. Today, I want to discuss in detail this republic to set us up for many more stories and tales about Rome in the upcoming weeks. First, I'll discuss why a new form of government was needed from democracy, how republics and democracies are different, I will then discuss the different branches of government and how they check and balance each other in a republic, and then I'll discuss the various jobs of the government, and finally how the people of Rome made their voices heard to their representatives. Before we get into the Republic, a quick review of the problems with democracy is in order. As I talked about in my episode on Athenian democracy, the words democracy and republic in modern parlance are sometimes used interchangeably. This is incorrect. While the Roman Republic and republics generally shared key traits with Athenian democracy, such as voting and legislative bodies that cater to the upper and lower classes, separate judicial bodies and separate executive bodies, they are not the same. Democracy required all citizens to participate in government. Many positions were chosen by lottery, and sometimes citizens were unhappy about being roped into public service. People hate jury duty in the modern day. Imagine having attorney and judge duty to worry about too. Oh, and by the way, you might also have to take a two-month break from work to perform Congress duty this year. Oh well, hopefully your crops won't need you. In addition to this responsibility, there were important policy decision meetings every 10 days. If you couldn't show up to the meetings, then it was assumed you were okay with whatever was being decided. Well, this wasn't always the case. Sometimes things come up and you can't go to a policy meeting. Sometimes you have work, sometimes your family needs you. In this situation, it sure would have been nice to have someone you trust represent your interests at every meeting, but... In Athens, they didn't have this. Democracy is ruled by the majority. This works great if your majority consists of honest and thoughtful people who are well-informed and respect those who disagree with them. But if this is not the case, and it almost never is, then your state is doomed. In Athens, since the majority had powers to change laws, go to war, exile, and kill people, Many atrocities and mistakes were made, like the execution of Socrates and their fumbling through a war with Sparta after appointing a leather tanner as head of the army. And by 404 BC, their democracy ended, and they never rose to be a great or influential power ever again. Democracy died in darkness after just 186 years. 
Another problem with democracies is that they suffer from demagogues. Demagogue is a term that originated from Athenian democracy, referring to a leader of the common people. It has since gained the negative connotation of leaders who appeal to the prejudices and emotions of ordinary people instead of using rational argument. Demagogues often offer overly simplified solutions to complex problems, or they're just flat-out liars. They prey on the uninformed as their base of support. While every society has its demagogues, for democracies they are particularly catastrophic because once a majority puts a demagogue in power, there's no legal recourse for stopping them from doing whatever they want. The last problem with democracy I'll touch on is that it changes its mind like a girl changes clothes. For example, during the war with Sparta, the Athenians debated what to do with a rebellious city-state called Mytilene. One day, they sent out the order to kill all of the men and enslave all of the women and children. The next day, they felt so bad for that brutal order that they overturned the decision. Talk about bipolar. Democracy is a little bit reactive, to say the least. About a hundred years after Athens started using democracy, a new form of government was being tried in Rome, a republic. Republic comes from the Latin phrase res publica, res meaning thing and publica meaning public. Together they mean a public matter, not a public thing. So what makes a republic different and, in my opinion, better than a democracy? The key difference is a republic is ruled based on law, not on the will of the majority. Republics establish rights that are inalienable. Inalienable means they are never surrendered or transferred regardless of who's in charge, be you in the majority or the minority. In other words, the rights of an individual cannot be overridden by the masses. In Athens, you could be exiled or killed if enough people agreed. At their core, republics believe sovereignty or the authority to rule rests within each individual instead of the collective population. Another difference is in republics, people elect representatives and specialists to defend their interests in law and politics. They don't have to be present themselves to ensure that they are heard. And so in republics, you end up with people voting for judges to run the courts, and people voting for representatives to debate on behalf of their interests, and people vote for professional military leaders to run the army instead of running it themselves. This works better than a democracy because you don't have a simple majority or people selected by lottery deciding big legal policy and military decisions. You have specialists that the people have approved making those decisions. And the regular people, they don't have to keep abreast of every single political issue of the day and they don't have to attend every meeting. They can find a representative who they trust and who will defend their interests. But, like a democracy in a republic, the people still have the last say, especially in Rome. The voters not only had the rights to re-elect representatives they liked and remove those they didn't like, but they also could amend laws, they could decide if the country would go to war or not, and they could decide if criminals received the death penalty or not. So now that we've examined how republics are similar and different than democracies, let's look at the different pieces of the Roman Republic and how they function together. Like Athens, Rome was divided into classes. There was the members of the wealthy aristocracy, known as patricians, 
and the common people who were known as plebeians. The main governing body of Rome was the Senate. Senate comes from the Latin word senex, meaning elderly. And so originally the term referred to a council of elders. Since the age of the seven kings, the Senate was the wise old men who advised the Roman kings. With the beginning of the Republic, the Senate was formalized as a governing body consisting of 300 to 500 patricians who served lifelong terms. Since they were unelected patricians, a few checks had to be placed on them to keep them in line. First of all, two plebeians were appointed as tribunes, and they had the power to say veto, I forbid, to any decree of the Senate. Second of all, the patricians were not allowed to select who would be a senator, but instead were appointed by the censors. Censors were officials elected by plebeians that served an 18-month term. During this term, in addition to appointing senators, they also conducted the census, which is where they got their name. They also had the authority to remove senators and to strip traitors of their Roman citizenship. A few decades after the Republic started, the censors were permitted to appoint plebeians as senators. Despite these checks on the senators, the position was still very favored and admired and respected. Senators were entitled to wear a toga with a broad purple stripe, maroon shoes, and an iron, and later, gold ring. This was a big deal since anciently, purple was the color of authority, as it was the rarest and most expensive dye. The dye was extracted from predatory purple sea snails and was thus very, very costly to extract. Other citizens could not only afford... They couldn't afford purple, but they also were explicitly banned from wearing togas, so no toga parties. Anyway, the Senate was in charge of telling the magistrates what to do. The Senate would do this through vigorous debate and voting. Senators would vote by clustering in groups of people who supported one another. And so voting was a very visible and peer pressure driven process. Once the senators saw which voices had the most support, they would draft up their decisions into a decree called the Senatus Consulta, the advice of the Senate. They would then deliver this advice to the executive branch of the Republic, the magistrates. Despite being couched as advice, the magistrates almost always had to follow the consulta. At the end of a magistrate's term, the Senate would have accountability meetings with the magistrates and determined if they followed the consulta faithfully enough and if they were worthy for continued public service. Now, who were these magistrates? Well, we already talked about two of them. The censors were a type of magistrate. Magistrates were the daily administrators of the Republic elected by the People's Assemblies. They typically served year-long terms. The magistrates divided the responsibilities that originally belonged to the king into increasingly tinier chunks. According to Latin professor N.S. Gill, quote, Roman magistrates held power either in the form of imperium or potestas, military or civil, that might be limited to either inside or outside the city of Rome, close quote. Magistrates ran provinces, oversaw different functions of the government and army. After serving a term as a magistrate, a Roman citizen was eligible to be appointed to the Senate. Each magistrate was part of a collegium, a collection of two or more magistrates assigned to the same task. 
the most important collegium was that of the two consuls. The two consuls were magistrates who acted as judges, overseers of the civil service, and the commanders of the army. They were required to serve previously in other roles as magistrates and meet certain age requirements. The two consuls had to agree on any decision they made and had the power to veto one another as well. The consuls were elected as magistrates by the plebeian soldiers of the army. As a barrier to tyranny, consuls were only allowed to serve one term every ten years. At first, consuls could only come from the ranks of patricians. Later, plebeians were also permitted to serve. Finally, it actually became a requirement to have one patrician and one plebeian consul. Below the consuls was the collegium of praetors, two men who were able to serve as judges or command an army. When Rome became an empire, this position evolved into the Praetorian Guard, which were the powerful bodyguards of the emperor. Below the Praetors, the Collegium of Aediles, who ran domestic matters from organizing games to mending sewers. Then there was the Collegium of Quaestors, who oversaw public expenditures. And so now we have covered the executives of the Republic, the consuls, the advisors of those executives, the Senate, the check on the Senate, the tribunes, and we've discussed the bureaucrats who carried out the orders of the consuls, the magistrates. There are now just two missing pieces to our picture of the Roman Republic, the two plebeian assemblies who represented the will of the people in passing laws and electing the magistrates. The first plebeian assembly was the Assembly of Centuries, whose members represented each of the 170 infantry divisions, called centuries, and the 12 to 18 cavalry divisions of the army. They were responsible for electing the two consuls. The second plebeian assembly was the assembly of tribes, whose members represented the 35 different tribes of Rome. The assembly of tribes, also the Comitia Tributa in Latin, approved or rejected laws, decided issues of war and peace, and it was through their representatives in the assembly that the people voted for the magistrates that would run the government that year. N.S. Gill explains, quote, Roman assemblies were called to vote after notice of issues had been publicized, or when batches of candidates needed to be voted on. A magistrate published an edict in front of a contio, a public gathering, and then the issue was posted on a tablet in white paint. Regular plebeians would make their voices heard to their representatives per tabulum, by ballot, at the saepta, or voting space, a wooden pen with 35 roped-off areas for each tribe to vote in. The representatives of each tribe would then try to vote how the majority of their tribe wanted. When the representatives of the two assemblies held a vote, the wealthier and more powerful tribes and infantry divisions were given the priorgotivi, the prerogative, to vote first. This was an important position because sometimes, if a majority plus one was reached early on in voting, the lesser tribes and divisions wouldn't even need to vote since the issue was already decided. This gave the more powerful units the ability to control the momentum of a vote just a bit. Now let's take a moment and just marvel at the ingenuity of this system. How it gives all the people a voice while also protecting the interests and rights of each group the soldiers, the plebeians, the patricians. These checks and balances of each population over one another are brilliant. 
the Republic truly was a marvel. However, in the Republic's history, there were some dangers that required expedited decision-making. In these unsettling times, nobody wanted to wait for the assemblies to argue, the grumpy old senators to ham and haw, the tribunes to give their rubber stamp, and then have to wait for the consuls to come to agreement and then divvy out the orders to the bureaucracy of magistrates. In peacetime, a meandering government like this is fine. It, in fact, it's great. It prevents your rights from being trampled on, and it makes sure that all laws are carefully crafted and deliberated. However, in wars and disasters, a meandering government gets everybody killed and wishing that they could have had just a king. And so the Republic had a tool to deal with this. The consuls could propose the six-month appointment of a magistrate to serve as dictator, from the Latin word dictare, to say often or prescribe. The Senate would then need to approve the appointment of the dictator, and the occasions of their appointment only included war, sedition, pestilence, or sometimes religious reasons. In the history of the Republic, there were 85 such dictators. The tradition died down by the late Republic era, but after a hundred years it was revived by Sola and then again by Julius Caesar, both of whom ignored most of the rules about being dictator, especially the term limit. While dictators were endowed with the full authority of the state to deal with a crisis rapidly, the plebeian tribunes still had some limited veto powers over them. Additionally, dictators were forbidden to act outside of their sphere of authority, and they were obliged to resign their office once their appointed task had been completed, if it was completed faster than six months, at which point they would be ousted anyway. Well, now that you've learned all about the different cogs of the Republic machine, you're ready to learn about the many exciting stories of Roman history. In the coming weeks, we'll discuss great heroes to the Republic, like Cincinnatus, who inspired George Washington, by the way, and other people who I don't know how to feel about them yet, because I haven't researched them enough. There's the Gracchus brothers, Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Sola. It will be a great adventure, and I'm excited to learn with you. The other reason I've shared this episode is I hope you see the similarities our modern republics have with the Roman Republic. The checks and balances, the veto powers, the bicameral, or two-house legislature, the representative democracy, the magistrates, all of these pieces should be sounding familiar because they all have their modern-day equivalents. As we learn about the inventors of the Roman Republic, its strengths and its weaknesses, its heroes and its villains, it gives us an understanding of our modern republics, and we can glean insights into how to protect ours from devolving into an empire, or worse. I sincerely thank you all for listening today, and I hope you share this with a friend. Feel free to send feedback on this podcast as well. Today's information comes largely from the work of N.S. Gill on ThoughtCo.com, as well as the book called The Classics by Carolyn Taggart. And that's history for you. Bye.